healing for his body. Father, healing of the pneumonia, healing of uh, whatever is septic in his body, the cause of it, that you would just cause that sepsis to be completely healed in Jesus' name. Father, we pray for healing even of his blood pressure. And that, Father, you would touch and heal his body as he fights cancer, Lord. Bring healing and wholeness to him and help him to uh, recover and to get out of the hospital soon. Father, we thank you this morning. We look forward now to coming and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We ask for your spirit to fill our hearts and to not only touch and fill us and empower us to worship, but Lord, the many that are watching from home and other locations, we pray that you would bless them, that their living rooms and the places from which they watch would be places of worship right now as your spirit comes upon them. That they would lift you high in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
is not the same as joy. Happiness is based on what happens to us and whether we think it's good or bad. Joy comes from inside to inside out. It's not based on circumstances. The joy is given through the Holy Spirit and is con constant source because he lives in us and through us. As we light this candle during the season of Advent, we rejoice in our spirits that Jesus is the light of the world and will return. Here are some joyful scriptures. Nehemiah 8.10 For the joy of the Lord is our strength. Psalms 5.11 Let all those that put their trust in you rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy. Because you defend them, let them also that love your name be joyful in you. Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah 6110. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. John 15, 11, These things I have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. As we light this candle, we do this remembering with joy, His greatness in every situation, his great desire that each of us, as his children, be full of joy. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you sent your Son to save us. Even as Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, may that same joy carry us through as our strength in the midst of difficult times. God, you never fail us. We rejoice in the new life that you have given us, and we look forward to gazing with joy on the beautiful face of Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. for this morning. We thank you for the word of God and how your spirit has carried along men for thousands of years to put together your scriptures so that we could hear how you want to reveal yourself to us, your love for us, your hope for us, your plan for us. 
We ask that you would speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. As Luke begins his gospel, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent theology, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This opening is what makes me so love the book of Luke. I, uh, I love history. I think if God hadn't called me into ministry, I might have done something having to do with history. I love that Luke is not only a physician, but he is a historian. He is someone who carefully uh, does research. He, uh, unlike some researchers in media today who don't care about uh, eyewitness sources or even secondary, but just make it up as they go, um, Luke was a very solid historian. He went to eyewitnesses and recorded their accounts. Um, he says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. So we went back to those who were uh, a part of hearing and, and those who saw angels and those who saw visitations and every little stage of this whole story of the things that have been uh, accomplished among us, as God puts it. And he writes this down and it, he says, uh, he does so in consecutive order. So there's, there's, uh, it's not just sporadic, different little things, but we're getting a story here in order. I think we get to learn a lot from the Gospels, a lot from Scripture. But what I love about Luke is that he writes and he lets us know from the beginning he is being very careful with what he records. Now, he writes it. To, and and uh, sends it to one called Most Excellent Theophilus. No one's quite sure who he is because in history we don't really have him mentioned in another area as a, uh, a ruler. But most likely he was some type of governing official to be called Most Excellent Theophilus. Um, that's as much as we know. But uh, he had been taught uh, truths about the gospel. That's what Luke says. And so what Luke is doing is... Uh, he says, Theophilus, I know that you've heard the gospel, and it sounds kind of like Theophilus probably had believed in the gospel, but what he wanted to do was he wanted to uh, go and do the research and compile everything that had occurred and put it in a nice orderly fashion for Theophilus, and certainly the Spirit of God was working so that the rest of us could have this. Well, in verse 5, it begins this way. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. This is the way Luke starts off his gospel. And the reason he does so is because this is how the story of Jesus uh, really begins. Uh, because it is both prophesied that the Messiah will come, but it is also prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi that one in the spirit of Elijah would also come before the Messiah, before Christ. So when Luke writes this, he says, I'm, I'm going to let you know that there is not only the prophecy of the Messiah being fulfilled, but the prophecy of the forerunner of the Messiah, which bonifies all the more the coming of the Messiah, because both were to come, the forerunner and then the actual promised one of God. And so to be able to record that the forerunner did come as prophesied in Scripture, and then to be able to add to that uh, the, the fulfillment of the coming of the Messiah, the two together strengthen what Luke is writing to his audience. And we're not going to talk about Jesus this week. I'm going to hold off and do that uh, on the next message. But I want to spend today talking about John the Baptist and what God used him for and why he sent him ahead of the Messiah. So you got back down there, uh, we were to back up a little bit uh, to verse 14. He says, now this is the angel Gabriel speaking here. He says, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Now this is all talking about John the Baptist. 
He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. This isn't part of the prophecy about him. This is the calling that is upon him. God is actually declaring that what he's going to do through this child that will be born. Remember, these things are being declared about a baby that is not even conceived yet in the mother's womb. But God sees and knows. And don't you know that our sovereign God knows everything about us. He knows everything that will happen throughout our life. He knows the day we will be born and the day that we will be taken home to be with Him. He knows all of it. And He declares knowing exactly what He's called this son John to, what He's going to use him for. He declares that He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is He who will be or who will go as a forerunner before Him, capital H, speaking of Jesus Christ. He will be a forerunner before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the Father back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's something we're going to see as we go through other passages about Elijah. The, the calling on his life is to make the people ready for the Lord. John himself will say that he is not the Messiah, not even close to it. But he was only the forerunner. He's just setting the stage. And we're going to see that and we're going to unpack it in just a little bit, a little more. I want to take you now uh, to the end of chapter 1. Beginning of verse 57 is where John is actually born. It says, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed. But he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. To grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him. Without fear. Wow. Amen. That God would 
Deliver us from our enemies that we might serve him without fear. Please don't miss that. Because the enemies that the Jewish people thought they were going to be delivered from was the Romans. What was the real enemy that we were being delivered from? Sin. The power of the devil. The power of death. Sin and its grip on us. We were slaves to sin. That's what he comes to set us free from. It's not from just a nation or some rulers on the earth. In fact, salvation comes right in the midst of that and will come all through that kingdom of Rome and all other kingdoms. The kingdom of God can penetrate into all as it is doing right now in all parts of the world. It doesn't matter if you're a communist nation. If you're China or Iran or Iraq or Syria, it doesn't matter if you've got the worst of dictators ruling over your country. Good luck with stopping Jesus Christ from coming across your border into the hearts of your people. Because the kingdom of heaven, it is, it is advancing forcefully by the power of God most high. It is advancing forcefully. And men and women and children, young and old, are being born again right now. By the power of Jesus Christ. Right now, God is saving souls all over the world through the grace of His Son, Jesus Christ. Guys, this is what He's coming to do. John is coming to make way for this Messiah who is coming. Listen as He goes on. In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, He's now, after having spoken about the coming of the Messiah and what He will do, John being carried along by the Holy Spirit and giving this prophetic word says, and you child, speaking of his son that has just been born, you child will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and to and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. Now, listen to this. What John is called to do and even, again, that prophecy. Remember, we, we read that prophecy at the beginning where uh, it said down in verse 16, and, and he will turn many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God and turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then when John, uh, or when his father Zechariah is prophesying over him, and he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. The knowledge of salvation. Does anybody know the main thing that John the baptizer preached? If you could put it in one word, what would you say? Repent. Repent, right? That is the core of John's message is repent. Because that is how we, he, he prepares the way for the Lord's coming. His message was all about repentance. He says uh, that 
his, his father prophesies over him that he's going to give uh, his people the knowledge of salvation. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. How are we saved? We're saved when our sins are forgiven. Right? Yeah. Isn't that even what Jesus preached? Yeah. That's what the apostles preached. That's what after Christ's resurrection, we are saved by the forgiveness of our sins. How does that work? Well, the Bible says in John that, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Romans that uh, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Death for eternity. Death to our spirits. The gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin. So sin has brought death. That is also said by Paul in other epistles. He says that sin came into the earth through what Adam and Eve did there in the garden. And then uh, death comes in through sin. Death can't come where sin isn't. But sin made the way. When mankind sinned, then death could enter in through sin. It, 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 it became the conduit for death to come on the earth. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being saved from eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Eternal condemnation. Being saved from spiritual death and being made alive. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because you are dead in your sins. Romans 6 says, talks about that a lot. How we are dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. Dead in our iniquity. But what Jesus comes to do is make us alive in Christ Jesus. Right? So we are separated from God because of our sins. We are dead because of our sins. What he's coming to save us from is death. One of the last enemies to go into the lake of fire in Revelation is death. It will be cast into the lake of fire. It will be utterly defeated. When Jesus dies and is buried and rises again, he destroys death, hell, and the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that. Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, O death? Where is it? You've got nothing. Because what Christ Jesus comes to do is destroy death. Death has no power over those who are in Christ. Why? Because Christ Jesus is life himself. In John uh, chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way. The truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. Except by me. I am the life, he says. I am the way. I am the truth. You want to come to the Father? You must be made alive. And I am life. So when you come into me, you come into life. You come into life. Life eternal. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But when you come into me, I make you alive. You are born again and made alive. Like any child that is, that is born uh, is, is not alive until they are conceived in their mother's womb. At conception, they become alive and they begin to grow. But until that point, they don't exist. And you and I must be born again to be made alive. 
For that old uh, death of sin and the wages of sin to be dealt with and taken away. That's what John came to preach. He came to be a forerunner for the Messiah. He says uh, that he will prepare the way and to give the people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You see, it is not about our works. It's about His mercy. The tender mercy of our God who sees us, though we are sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible expressly says that God loved us even while we were still sinners. Even while we're still in our rebellious ways, Christ Jesus died for us because He loved us. That's mercy. He didn't wait for us to get our act together, to fix all of our problems, to clean ourselves up. No, He died for us. God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son, and whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have life eternally. We'll have eternal life. 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 This is what John the Baptist comes. He comes preaching that salvation comes by the forgiveness of sins. So if the forgiveness of sins, the sin in your life being taken away, removed from you, as, the, as so much of Scripture tells us, how does that happen? If, if that must happen for life to come, that sin, through the wages of sin, death comes. So in order to take care of death, so you have life eternally, you have to get rid of the sin. And we know that the blood of Jesus Christ can cover our sins, cleanse our sins, forgive us of sins, and even justify us and make us righteous. This is all coming from the gospel and the, the New Testament. Uh, so much, even the Old Testament says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. We know the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is the only blood that can truly Take away sin for all eternity. So why is it so important? Well, because if, in, in order for sin to be forgiven, we must repent. We, we must come to God with a heart that says, I am a sinner and I desire to turn from it. And we may need the power of God and the help of God to turn from it. But we have to, in our heart and mind, acknowledge that we have been walking in sin, living in sin. That there are sins about us that we want to turn from. And you see, the beginning of repentance always will start in the heart. Now you having the power to actually walk it out is something only God can do. But the heart, when we recognize that we are sinners, you know what Isaiah the prophet says in, in Isaiah, I believe it's, in uh, chapter 6, maybe chapter 1. Um, he says, uh, Oh, am I a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Right? He talks about how he is a sinner. Why did he say that? The, the, the setting is, the context of his statement is, he is in the presence of God. Amen. When he stands there before the throne of God, in the presence of God, all he can see is his sinful presence of absolute holiness. 
Guys, until we recognize and see that we are sinners, how can we cry out for his forgiveness? How can we call upon the Lord and why would we ever call upon him if we don't believe we need him? See, the first thing that we need is to know that we need a Savior. I believe that even before God sends John the Baptist, God in his beautiful sovereignty and plan <coughs> sent the law through Moses. Paul does a great job telling us about this as he goes through his epistles. He tells us that the law was sent to point us to Jesus Christ. The law was sent to point out that we are sinners. You see, how do I know that I'm a sinner until the law tells me that I'm a sinner? How do I know what wrong is until the law points out what wrong is? The law is, a, is an instrument of God that he sends so that we could know what adultery is. So that we could know what coveting is. So that we could know what lying murder is and all these things. And, and we can recognize that we do these things. We are liars and cheaters and thieves and we... We are adulterers, whether in our hearts or in our physical bodies. We, we do wrong things. We are deceptive in all kinds of ways. We are sinful people. Pride is in our hearts and in our lives. We put other things before God. We take His name in vain. We don't keep His Sabbath. There's so much that we do that is sin. Why does God send that? Because He needs you to understand it. That you're a sinner. He needs you to know that you do wrong. That you need a savior. He needs you to recognize that there's sin in your life. And that sin brings eternal separation from God. That sin brings death. And there is no one righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Everyone needs this salvation that Luke is writing about, this salvation that John is being sent to proclaim how it works. When John comes saying this, he's, he's saying uh, that the knowledge of salvation comes through the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins can only come through the Lamb of God who, whose blood takes away our sins. That's it. Let's go to our last, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So the last passage we read was, was John being born. When we come to Luke 3, verse 1, we, we're bouncing ahead 15, 20 years. John is... been about ministry for quite a while now. Uh, in fact, it may be closer to 30 years. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Etria and Trachonitis and Licinius, and uh, was tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas. <laughs> In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And 
He came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, this lets us know when he begins his ministry, when the word of the Lord comes to John, until this time, John's just growing up. He's out spending his time in the desert. God's doing something in him, developing a relationship. I, we don't know what was going on in the desert, but we know that at this time, the word of the Lord comes to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district of the Jordan, which is talking about the Jordan River. And he began preaching a baptism of repentance. And if you don't know this about Judaism... Judaism is the religion that Jesus grew up in. It's the religion that Peter, Paul, and all of them grew up in. It is, the, uh, it is what Christianity is birthed out of because in Judaism, where all the prophecies are, in fact, Jesus, our, our Savior, is the Jewish Messiah in Judaism. All right? So uh, in Judaism, before Christianity was birthed through Christ's coming, the Jews baptized people for repentance. You can go over to Israel and find ancient baptismals that were Jewish baptismals, where people came and they, uh, when they were repenting, they would be baptized. All right. So John doing this, he wasn't inventing baptism. All right. When he's called John the Baptist, it's not because he was a Southern Baptist, all right? <laughs> and didn't come home for a long, long time. <laughs> and and, and though have, there have been a few books written, you know, 80, 100 years ago that tried to trace John the Baptist all the way to the Baptist current. That's just pride. People trying to connect to a star way back. I mean, that's, you can't do that. Um, John was called John the Baptizer because... He went out to the Jordan and was baptizing people. It's pretty easy. John was doing what his people did. But John was a prophet of God, sent out into this area by the Lord with a message calling God's people, the Jewish people, calling them to repent. Calling them to repent. And when they would do so, the, the, the baptism taking them out of the water, bringing them up there in the Jordan River was being done as a symbol of what was taking place. It was a ceremonial washing. The Jordan River didn't take away their sins, okay? Just like the baptismal water's up here, don't take away sin, we're going to baptize a little girl in the next service. Her sins are already forgiven because of her faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's His blood, it's her faith in what He's done that caused her sins to be forgiven and has given her life eternal. Uh, this is a symbol that she has uh, been buried with Christ and is raised to be a new creation, a new creature. Let's go back to our passage in Luke 3. It says, And he came into all the district around Jordan, the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is where you see that prophecy about him coming. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh 
will see the salvation of God. Now you can find that prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3 through 5. We might ask, why did God, why did he poetically phrase it like that? Why did he describe John's coming like this? When I look at it and I read it, I think, you know, what is he saying here except that he's saying make ready the way of the Lord. And how is he to make ready the way of the Lord? Well, he's to make the path straight, the ravines filled, and the mountains low. Everything that would hinder someone from getting to the Lord, he's saying he's going to take. Have you ever... Uh, let, let's say, I'm going I'm to use an extreme example, but how many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? All right, a few of you have. Uh, the Grand Canyon, or you could find a, a, a nice, the Royal Gorge in Colorado. That's a good one, right, if you've seen that one. Uh, how many of you would, wanna, would want Jesus to be on the other side of the Royal Gorge or the Grand Canyon or something like that? And he's saying, all you got to do is get over here to me and all your sins will be forgiven. If you've ever really seen the Royal Gorge, you realize that's impossible. <laughs> if you take away the bridge they built, <laughs> that's impossible, okay? Um, it's a great obstacle. I, I've, I've rafted down through it on the uh, river, and, and I've, I've gone down it when they used to have a cog rail, and I've walked across it on bridges, and I'm telling you, that is a deep, very steep-sided place. What... What John is being sent is to take the ravines and Lebanon. And the mountains, if you've ever tried to cross a mountain. I've climbed some mountains in my time, and I love it. But I, I would hate for Jesus to be standing on the other side saying, just, just come to me. <laughs> yeah, you might get there, but it's tough. Very, very tough. All obstacles is what he's saying here. The obstacles of mountains are being leveled and the ravines are being brought up. Why? Because he says, I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm going to make this easy for you. I'm sending one who is going to make the way ready. He's going to bring up the ravines and lower the mountains. Every obstacle that would get in the way of you being saved. And what is the obstacle in the way of you and I getting saved? What are the ravines and the mountains that get in the way of you and I being saved? Sin. Sin is the ravine. Sin is the pit. Sin is the mountains. Sin is the thing that we can't overcome by ourselves. Now we might, in my little example of mountains and ravines, we might go, well, if I had repelling gear... I could go down and come up. And if I had this, I could go over a mountain. I'm sure we all could. But sin is a mountain you can't overcome. It's a ravine you can't get past. Because you and I don't have the power. We don't have the gear to overcome sin on our own. What John is being sent to do is say, repent. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and turn from your sin and those mountains and ravines will all of a sudden be leveled out because you've humbled yourself before your God and you've turned from your sin and in doing so your heart is ready now 
but the salvation that will come through the Savior. The salvation has not yet come because this is the forerunner, but he's getting hearts ready for the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is only six months younger than John the Baptist. They're cousins, for anybody who didn't know that. They are first cousins. And John is making the way ready. His uh, cousin Jesus is coming along right behind him. And they're both going to preach the same message. Repent. Repent. Why? Because repentance is how we are born again. We must acknowledge that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. Let me finish uh, our, our passage here. Um, verse 7 says, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you don't just do it once, but keep with it. So John said, don't just come out into the river and say, Hey, I've messed up a few times, get forgiveness, and then go back and start sinning again. He says, no, keep up with it. What does that mean? It means remember that sin should not have a place in you. If you mess up, if you sin, get it out. Guys, let me say it like this. Every house that you and I live in gets dirty. If you live in it, it gets dirty a whole lot faster. Right? Yeah. Every home gets dirty. If you move out, your house will get dirty. Cobwebs, spiders, dirt, dust will fill your house and it won't even take very long. Alright? It is a natural tendency for things to just get dirty. Does that mean that we just say, well, it's going to happen anyways. I'm not going to do anything about it. Guys, that is some messed up thinking. Amen. Say, well, it's going to get dirty anyways. Why even clean it? <laughs> it's just a waste of my time. It'll be dirty again tomorrow. I think some of them probably have that philosophy about making the bed. Well, why make it? I'm getting it back in it tonight. It's going to leave it like it is. It's just wasting my time, right? Well, I don't care whether you make your bed or not. I don't care how well you keep your house. But let me say this about sin. Is you don't just let it stay. Because if you do, it'll get so bad, it'll overtake your life. And to be honest... Whether we're super neat freaks or we're not so neat freaks, no matter what, guys, if we never clean our house, there'll come a day we can't live in our house. There'll come a day where we won't be able to survive and become a toxic place, and we will die if we try to live there because we must take out the trash, right? We must eat and we must take out the trash. We must even at a bare minimum do some type of cleaning and taking out trash. And guys, in the same way, you must repent and you must keep up with repentance like someone must keep up with some type of house cleaning. We must in order to keep living. And so what John is saying is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you want to bear the fruit of God, if you want to bear the fruit of his lightness, then you must Stay close to him by getting sin out. Take out the trash of sin in your life on a regular basis. Go to God and ask him for forgiveness. You're going to sin. You are. 1 John 1 tells us. If we 
confess our sins, and that verb is if we keep on confessing, he will keep on forgiving. He says if anyone is without sin, he's a, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. That's what the Bible says. We're all going to sin, and hopefully by the work of the Spirit of God inside of you, you're sinning less and less and less and less as you're growing in sanctification. That is the plan of God for you, for me. But the truth of the matter is, we will all sin. So for those out there in the world who say, well, you go to church, why do you keep messing up like that? Because well, that's what the Bible says is going to happen to me. No one ever said I would be perfect because I went to church on Sunday. Just says that I'm growing and trying to keep my house a little bit cleaner. That's what is happening. I, I desire to grow in righteousness, to grow in love for other people and humanity, and that's what righteousness is. It's growing in being a loving person. It's, righteousness, simply put, is loving God and loving people. That's what righteousness is. Sometimes we think of the word righteousness and we think of haughty, arrogant, super religious is what we think and you don't understand at all. If you'll read your Bible, righteousness is love. And that's all it is. If, if, for, for folks out there talking about how we all need to love and, and, and religious people don't love, Christians don't love, I beg your pardon. God himself is love and everything he writes in the Bible is about love. It comes from love. It's motivated by love. The Ten Commandments are all about loving one another. Everything is about love. So when he says bear fruit and keep in order of repentance, he wants us to continue to turn from sin where we harm one another and where we uh, dishonor God and we, we bear fruit of love and righteous behavior. He says, and, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, don't tell me that your daddy was a Baptist or your mama was a Pentecostal or your grandma was a Catholic. He says, it don't matter. I don't care who your daddy or your grandpa was. I don't care if they were a deacon or a preacher. Or, I don't care. He says, the axe is already laid at the root. Every single person has to make their individual decision. Whether or not they're going to put their faith and trust in Christ and be forgiven and be made alive. You don't get in because of grandpa. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven because of mama or daddy. You get in because of your decision with Christ. Thankfully, if your ancestors never followed Christ and they were among the worst people who live on the planet, you're also not condemned under their condemnation. You can run to Jesus Christ, be born again and saved and have a brand new start in your life. And you don't have to carry on the heritage of your forefathers. You make your own decision what you will do with Jesus. Verse 10 says, and the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? Remember, John just got through preaching this about how the trees are being cut down. The axe is already at the root. And he's, he's calling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he's talking about all these things. And they said, what shall we do? And he says, and he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. That's love. And to share, and he is, he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Let no more 
than what you have been ordered to. Remember our message on Zacchaeus a week or so ago? It's not a sinner to be a tax collector. It's a sinner to take more than you are supposed to take. That's what John is calling. He's not calling him to turn away from tax collecting. He says, just don't take more than what you're supposed to take. That's the repentance. And to those who aren't a tax collector, but we're just regular Jews, he says above them, when they're saying, what do we do? He's saying, well, you need to take care of those who don't have clothing and those who don't have food. If you have a little extra, you're to give it. You're to be loving and compassionate to your fellow man. And then it says, that in verse 13, and he said to them, uh, we have collect no more than what you are ordered to. Verse 14 says, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? You hear the heart of the people, tax collectors, common folks, soldiers are coming up to John. The Spirit of God is moving on them. They are being convicted over their sin. They don't want to miss the kingdom of heaven. Amen. And they're saying, what shall we do? And he says to the soldiers, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. This is very simple. The call to repentance, he's just telling them, be content. Don't take more than you should. Be kind to the poor. Be giving, generous to the poor. Help them. And verse 15 says, now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, because of all the wickedness, wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them, to them all. And he locked John up in prison. <coughs> what I want you to hear is John the Baptist is a forerunner. And how he foreran for salvation to come is through preaching repentance calling people to turn from what they're doing evil so their heart should be ready to receive the gospel. That's the same today as it was then. In order for you to be born again, you first need to recognize that you are a sinner. And that's why God sends prophets. It's why He sends teachers and preachers. It's why He gave us His Word and His Spirit so that we would know and understand that we are sinners. It's why He gave us the law because He wants us to Recognize. He, he wants it to be undeniable that we are sinners. Undeniable that we are sinners. And then if we believe God's word that because I'm a sinner, death has come upon me. And there's no way that I can take away my sin. No way I can remove that ravine of sin or that mountain of sin in my life and get me back to God. There's no way that God is offering it. God is offering it. He says, just repent and put your faith in my son, Jesus Christ. This morning, if you have never repented of your sins and has confessed to God that you are a sinner and, and ask Him for the help to turn from it, if you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to invite you right now to come and pray with me. Give your life to Christ this morning. Be born again. Would you stand with me? We're going to enter into a time of invitation.
There'll be a few others up here to pray with you, as well as myself, if you'd like someone to pray with you. You're also welcome to just come to the altar and pray. We won't hold the invitation now any longer than necessary, but if you start moving, uh, we'll keep it going. We want to see God have His way in your life, so I hope you'll let Him.